Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host, and Bishop Barron is not with us this week. If you heard last week's episode, you learned that we're kind of shifting our release schedule here on the Word on Fire show. Instead of having a discussion podcast every week, we're now going to have one every two weeks. So that'll relieve a little bit of the stress from Bishop Barron and myself. But in the intervening weeks, we're going to share audio samples from a lot of our Word on Fire Institute courses, Bishop Barron's study programs, recent talks and lectures Bishop Barron has given. So there'll still be a huge amount of Word on Fire content coming your way. Today, we share a sample lesson from a brand new course that just launched in the Word on Fire Institute today. Today's the debut. The course is titled Science for Evangelists, and it's taught by one of our Word on Fire Institute fellows, Dr. Stacy Trisankos. This first lesson is titled Science Was Born of Christianity, and in it, Stacy explains how science and Christianity are not enemies, but that Christianity helped science to get off the ground, to develop beyond the limits imposed on it by ancient cosmologies. Stacy also introduces evangelists to the basics of science and helps to burst this science versus Christianity myth. So if you've ever had problems discussing science, if you know loved ones who have left the church because of science, I think you're really going to enjoy this lesson. But again, it's just sample lesson one. There are several more lessons in this course, and if you'd like to receive all of them, you need to join the Word on Fire Institute. I'll say more about it at the end of this episode, but you can learn more at wordonfire.institute. That's the website, wordonfire.institute. So sit back and enjoy lesson number one from Dr. Stacy Tresenko's course on science for evangelists. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Stacy Tresenkos, author of Particles of Faith, A Catholic Guide to Navigating Science, and professor in the Catholic Studies Department at Seton Hall University. What does it mean to say that science is born of Christianity? That is a shocking claim, is it not? An atheist once told me this claim caused him to spew coffee onto his computer screen, but another atheist agreed that it is indisputable. I have worked for years to polish this story because it is important for Catholics to know. It's part of our heritage. Christianity nurtured and helped modern science emerge as a formal discipline. First, I'd like to pay a short tribute to Father Stanley Yockey, a priest, theologian, physicist, historian, and philosopher who pieced the story together with facts. In 1966, after earning doctoral degrees in theology and physics, Yockey published a 600-page volume detailing the history of physics using the original sources available in the Firestone Library of Princeton University, back when 400-year-old books were out in the open. He titled the book, The Relevance of Physics. Father Yockey also demonstrated with exhaustive historical research in his 1974 volume, Science and Creation from Eternal Cycles to an Oscillating Universe, that science was born of Christianity. In 1987, Father Yockey was awarded the Templeton Prize for being a leading thinker in areas at the boundary of science and theology. Father Yockey's facts are facts of the written word, facts of historical events, facts of cultural mindsets, and facts of Catholic dogma. 
there was a literary codification of the concept of a creator and of a creation out of nothing in Genesis. And it forms an unbroken chain of belief, a pervasive ancient and modern worldview that unites all of Judaism and Christianity. Even today, among the atheists who love science, the world for them must be viewed as something created with order for anyone to study its laws. We also profess that God created the universe with the beginning in time. Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created heavens and earth. God is the origin of all outside of time. The Big Bang Theory is the prevailing cosmological explanation for the earliest moments of the universe, but the scientific theory is actually rather new on the scene. Before the time of Father Georges Lemaitre, not even 100 years ago, scientists thought the universe was expanding in a steady state with no beginning and no end. Throughout its history, though, the Catholic Church held that the universe does have a beginning in time as a matter of divine revelation. All the other ancient religions held some form of pantheism, though. Pantheism is a belief or philosophical theory that God is imminent in or identical with the universe, the doctrine that God is everything and everything is God. The difference between pantheism and creationism is both subtle and enormous. That little word is changes everything about the worldview. If God is nature, and nature is God, then to worship God is to worship nature. While Catholic teaching maintains that God operates within the universe, it does not go all the way to saying that God is the universe. Rather, we say that God created the universe and holds everything in existence. The universe is not God, it is God's creation, God's handiwork. This nuance puts science in its place as the study of the handiwork of God. Like all cultures, ancient people, though, searched for God. They noticed the cyclical regularity in nature, including days and nights, the rising and setting of the moon, sun, and stars, and the intervals of seasons. They witnessed rhythms in life, such as breathing, hearts beating, sleeping and waking, reproduction, and the life cycles of plants and animals. They reasonably concluded in various ways that the universe is one big, eternally cycling organism. There were various myths. The Egyptians pictured parts of the world as animal gods. Anubis was a god with a man's body and a jackal's head. Apis was a sacred bull born on a virgin cow impregnated by another god, Ptah. Bast was a cat goddess. Taoret, a hippopotamus goddess. For the Chinese, the goal of Taoism was to merge into the rhythm of cosmic cycles. Confucius taught that the individual should seek what is in himself and leave external things to their natural destiny. The Hindus held the doctrine of the Atman, the Indian expression for first principle, which taught that the individual self should strive to lay hold of the ultimate soul of the universe, the Atman, who is bred himself. The world soul is understood as an endless cycle of debirths and decays with no starting or ending points. For the Babylonians, the Enuma Elish was a portrayal of personified forces engaged in bloody battles. They thought that the mother goddess Tiamat was dismembered to form the sky, earth, water, and air. All these ancient cultures believed in an eternally cycling cosmos, and this worldview affected the way people thought of their own place in the world. Father Yaki compares this view to an eternal cosmic treadmill. It might seem that nature worship is conducive to science. After all, people should want to know more about nature if nature generates gods. But think of being born into such a culture. 
If you believe that time runs in endless circles, then you must conclude that your life is but part of an endless cycle that you cannot change. Under this view, there can be no progress, for progress implies moving forward, not in circles. Furthermore, think of how pantheism would affect the cultural desire for scientific enterprise. What motivation is there to understand and control the laws of physics if it is impossible to change a person's lot in life? Nonetheless, the history of science is a human story. It would be wrong to leave out all the contributions of all the ancient cultures. Modern science, which is the science of physical laws and systems of laws to describe the cosmos, emerged in a Christian culture, and not accidentally, but it was built on the contributions of ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, pre-Columbian America, China, India, Babylon, Greece, and Arabia. The Greeks actually came closer to a birth of science than any other culture. But the pantheistic cyclical worldview of the Greeks prevented the breakthrough of science as a self-sustaining discipline. Father Yaki wrote in Science and Creation that the extraordinary feats of Aristotle in biology were in a sense responsible for his failure in physics. Because he thought of the world as an organism, Aristotle thought all things have a soul and seek a final cause. Be it celestial body, man, animal, or object, all motion, he thought, is directed toward what the soul most desires. This continuous resort to animistic simile was compatible with biology, but not with the physics of inanimate matter. The cosmic treadmill belief survived among the Muslims who followed Aristotle's orthodoxy into the 13th and 14th centuries. Both the Bible and the Quran teach that God created the world with a beginning in time. Muslim philosophers, however, adopted the works of the Greeks without refuting pantheism, even though this view was in conflict with Muslim theology. Without the accompanying dogmas of the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation to safeguard a teleological progression from an absolute beginning to an end, a beginning in time can easily be taken for a beginning of a new cycle. The Muslim scholars advanced far in the biological sciences for the same reason Aristotle advanced in them, but they did not bring about a scientific revolution. You could say this failure of Muslim science is a failure to reconcile science with religion. That reconciliation would come from Christian scholars who, in adherence to the Christian creed, rejected the teachings of the Greek scientific corpus, which contradicted Christian dogma, particularly pantheism and the eternal cosmic cycle. If science was born in the Christian Middle Ages, then the ancient Hebrew culture was the nurturing womb that allowed science to emerge as a viable discipline. The Hebrews worshiped a creator who created the earth and all living things out of nothing. Recall that when the Israelites in Babylonian captivity hoped for the restoration of Jerusalem, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah to remind him that God is faithful. Just as God orders the day and night in the heavens and the earth, the heirs to King David's throne would include descendants as innumerable as the hosts of heaven and the sand of the sea. The nations were told to submit to God's will and obey His commands because God's covenant is as lasting as His covenant with nature. God's power in controlling laws of nature is often mentioned in the book of Isaiah. The Israelites believed that the law of God extended to all things, moral, societal, and natural, including the order and measure of physical objects in motion. 
The Book of Wisdom was written in Alexandria around the first century BC as Jewish thinkers met Hellenistic learning. The wisdom literature addresses the prevalent polytheistic nature worship of the Greeks compared to the unique belief of creation ex nihilo of the Jewish people. They believed in one God who is creator of the universe and source of all wisdom, who disposed all things by measure and number and weight. The same conviction that the world was created out of nothing by one God was defended in early Christianity as they communicated the gospel to other cultures. Saint Justin Martyr in the second century rejected this pantheistic view in his first apology. Stoics, a school of Greek philosophy, teach that even God himself shall be resolved into fire, and they say that the world is to be formed anew by this revolution. But we, he said, understand that God, the creator of all things, is superior to the things that are to be changed. Athenagoras, in the second century as well, another church father, taught that Christians distinguished God from matter, and that matter is one thing and God another, and that they are separated by a wide interval, for the deity is uncreated and eternal. He also taught that the world was an instrument in tune and moving in well-measured time, and that God is the only one who deserves worship because he gave the world its harmony and strikes its notes and sings the accordant strain. As Christianity spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire, Christian beliefs about creation and fundamental characteristics of Greek science began to unite. Church father Clement of Alexandria, who died in the third century, taught where the first school of Christian thought emerged. He also refuted paganism and pantheism. In his exhortation to the Greeks, Clement taught that their worship of idols bound the intellect to the blind forces of nature. He said, why pray do you infect life with idols, imagining winds, air, fire, earth, stock, stones, iron, this world itself to be gods? Clement urged for a more confident attitude towards nature, a view of a world created by a rational creator. The medieval Christian scholars likewise purified the Greek scientific corpus. Thierry de Chartres had no illusion about the difference between the creator and the creation. He explained the circular motion of the firmament and the stars as a projectile similar to how a stone is thrown. Its impetus is ultimately due to the hold of the thrower against something solid. Classical physics was to be born of such a view towards naturalness of the heavens and this early impetus theory. Robert Grossetest, Bishop of Lincoln in the 12th century, rejected the idea that the universe emanated from God. The role of the creator was in the forefront of his thinking, evidenced in his treatises, the Hexaemeron and the De Universitatis Machina. In these, Grossetest forcibly rejected the Aristotelian idea that the world had no beginning in time. The central theme of the Hexameron was the biblical theme that God is light, truly, essentially, and not in the metaphorical sense. Both treatises document that Grossetest's scientific methodology depended on the Old Testament understanding of the Creator as a rational and personal planner, builder, and maintainer of the universe. In Western Christendom, Albertus Magnus, St. Albert the Great, was the first to comprehensively interpret Aristotle's philosophy. Albertus rejected astrology and magic and instead argued for reason and investigation to go as far as possible.
He wrote a complete encyclopedia of philosophical disciplines based on the Aristotelian texts for his students of the Dominican order and began the part on natural sciences like this. Overcome by the request of certain of these brethren, we have undertaken this work first to the praise of Almighty God, who is the fountain of wisdom and the creator, orderer, and governor of nature. St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century likewise granted a generous acceptance of the Aristotelian system to show respect for the scholarship of his time. His first major synthesis was the Summa Contra Gentiles, which brought the authority of reason to bear on Muslim philosophy. Recall that Muslim philosophers did not effectively refute pantheism. St. Thomas began the Summa Contra Gentiles with the questions about the Creator and the search for truth. Aquinas departed from Aristotelic orthodoxy only where no compromise could be allowed by the Christian creed, and in this spirit expressed that the rejection of the eternity of the world was a matter of faith in revelation and not a matter of reason or demonstration. Here is what he said. The articles of faith cannot be proved demonstratively. By faith alone do we hold, and by no demonstration can it be proved that the world did not always exist. We'll come back to this idea in the lesson on the Big Bang. Three years later, in 1277, the Bishop of Paris, Etienne Tampier, issued a list of 219 condemned propositions relating to the Aristotelian texts that were irreconcilable with the Catholic worldview. These propositions served as a guide for the scholars at the University of Paris. Most of them dealt with the eternity of the world and creation. As the Aristotelian texts, unchallenged by Greek or Muslim scholars, were accepted into Christendom, it could only have followed that the theologians and philosophers of that time would seek to reconcile the contradictions. Yaki's work has provided undeniable evidence that medieval faith in the predictability of nature was rooted in the theology of the maker of heaven and earth. Yaki named the classical and most influential case that represents the birth of modern science from Christianity, that of Father Jean Buridan in the 14th century, the French priest who took the concept of the impetus proposed by Thierry de Chartres 200 years earlier and developed it further. Impetus theory led to the modern concept of inertia and paved the way for Isaac Newton's first law of motion. It's instructive to consider Father Buridan's refutation of Aristotelian physics. Buridan was concerned with explaining the movement of bodies. Aristotle's On the Heavens proposed a serious error that went uncorrected for 1,700 years under the influences of pantheism. The Aristotelian theory of motion held that moving bodies naturally desire rest. When an object moved in any other way than according to its nature, Aristotle believed, a mover had to be in contact with the object. The Greeks thought that there were two kinds of bodies, celestial, which is divine, and terrestrial, which is natural. The celestial bodies were the bodies from the moon upward. These heavenly bodies were in their most desired resting place as long as they were in contact with the prime mover. They moved in perfect circles in a divine substance called the ether. Thus, the heavenly realm moved in continuous circles because the bodies were in a perpetual contact with the prime mover. This doctrine was the basis of the eternal cycles called the great year, in which the eternal cosmos emanates from the prime mover. Likewise, the terrestrial bodies were thought to desire rest, but towards the center of the earth. 
If a mover, such as a person's hand, ceased to move it, the rock that was thrown fell straight to the earth and became suddenly at rest. Aristotle coined the term antiperistasis to explain why the objects moved. The word means that there is a surrounding peri, resistance anti caused by an unchanging equilibrium stasis. In the heavens, the ether surrounds the bodies. As they part the ether, it flows in behind them to fill the void and thus pushes them along by maintaining an equilibrium. This concept explained projectile motion on Earth. Once the mover, the hand for instance, throws an object and the object is no longer in contact with the mover, the surrounding air likewise resists the object, the anti. It is divided by the object and likewise impels the object along as it fills in the void behind the object in its wake. A ball thrown on Earth will be moved by antiperistasis, but the ball's nature will cause it to search for the ground. Thus, the motion is an arc in much the way physics students today learn to treat both vertical and horizontal components of two-dimensional motion, with one major exception. The pantheistic view of physics led Aristotle and his followers to conclude that if two bodies were dropped from the same height on Earth, the one with twice the weight of the other would fall twice as fast because it had twice the nature and twice the desire to seek its resting place. Aristotle writes this specifically in his On the Heavens, Book 1, Part 6. Simple observation proves otherwise. It is easily observed that two balls of different masses, if they fall at the same rate, they hit the ground at the same time. But the hold of this pantheistic orthodoxy on the Greek mind prevented them from seeing it. This simple observation was not noticed and not admitted by the ancient Greeks or by the Muslims who followed Aristotle. Father Buridan, however, rejected the doctrine of the great year and eternal cycles of the universe. In thinking scientifically, he pondered the cause of motion for heavenly and terrestrial bodies and appealed to common experience, judging Aristotle's position to be unsatisfactorily solved. Father Buridan gave the example of a child's toy, the top. A top spins in place, so there is no vacuum left behind it. There is no antiperistatic effect that moves the top or causes it to continue spinning. Furthermore, if a cloth is placed over the top to block any movement of air, it continues to spin. Buridan pointed out that if an arrow is sharpened at both ends, it still moves the same way it moves if the back end were blunt. If the motion were caused by the impulsion of the air moving in behind the arrow as it pierced the air, the area with the sharp posterior should not fly as far because there's no blunt end. But this is not observed. Further, Buridan argued, common experience shows that when a person pushes his hand through the air, he does not feel the air behind his hand pushing it along. Buridan concluded that there must be another explanation, and he adopted the concept of impetus. Impetus is what we now call a force. This force continues to move a stone after the hand throws it. The impetus continually decreases due to air resistance. The stone falls to the ground by a force called gravity. Further, tying this reasoning to common experience, Buridan explained that impetus is the reason that when we wish to jump a longer distance, we take a few steps back to run faster and drive ourselves farther. And it's why jumpers do not feel the air propelling them through the air 
but instead fill the air in front of them, resisting them against the force of the jump. Finally, Buridan noted that the Bible does not claim that God had to keep his hand on the celestial bodies to maintain their motion. Buridan was confident that the motion of celestial bodies could be answered another way. He became rector of the University of Paris in 1327, and he taught there for over three decades until about 1360. In 1377, his theory was formally proposed by Nicole Aram, was destined to be adopted by Albert of Saxony, then by Nicholas Copernicus, then by Galileo Galilei, and furthered by Sir Isaac Newton, all Christians. Hence, science was born in a Christian culture on purpose. The Muslim scholars failed to refute pantheism because there is a major difference in it and Christian monotheism, that of the clear distinction between creator and creation. Christian monotheism is Trinitarian and incarnational. God is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son who became man. Therefore, Christ is also the creator. In St. John's Gospel, Christ is also called the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. The Greeks also had a word for the Logos in the pantheistic universe, monogenes, which in Latin is unigenitus. Because Catholics defended the divinity of Christ against the Arian heresy that denied the divinity of Christ, they formulated the word consubstantial, that Christ is the Son of God, fully God and fully human. The divinity of the Logos demands, therefore, that the universe created by the Father in the Son be fully logical, fully ordered as befits a truly divine Logos. Nature cannot be random. Where the Greeks held an only begotten universe, Christians worshiped and worship still a flesh and blood being, Jesus of Nazareth, as the only begotten Son of God, which absolutely demands the refutation of pantheism, then and now. Either Jesus or the universe is only begotten, and we do not worship nature. There's a certain scientific significance to the beginning of St. John's Gospel. This idea, this truth, that science was born of Christianity is professed every time we read the beginning of the Bible. It is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, sung in our hymns and remembered in our prayers. We all know it. I hope you think of this story and perhaps say a prayer for Father Yaki next time you pray the Creed in Mass. We hope you enjoyed that sample lesson from our Word on Fire Institute course on Science for Evangelists by Dr. Stacy Tresankos. Remember, this is just lesson number one. There are six more lessons in the course, which you can find inside the Word on Fire Institute. Let me just briefly run through them. Lesson two is on the Big Bang and Proof for God. Lesson three is Free Will and Physics. Lesson four is titled Fear Not Evolution. Lesson five is Evolution for Catholics. Lesson six is Bioethics, Personhood, and Life. And finally, lesson seven is titled Completing the Scientific Revolution. 
all of these lessons will be rolling out in the coming weeks to students of the Word on Fire Institute. So if you want the rest of the course, visit wordonfire.institute. That's where you can sign up. Not only will you get access to this course, but there's over a dozen other great courses. You also will get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, and you'll receive the beautiful Evangelization and Culture Journal in the mail four times a year. So join over 15,000 other Catholics as a part of this new institute. We'd love to see you inside. Again, it's wordonfire.institute. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week on the Word on Fire show.